Let me tell you today about Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, or you can record it on another device or platform and transfer it to Anchor. It will distribute your podcast for you through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast right in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We welcome in a man that not just dazzled on the mound, but was the envy of many with his long blonde hair. A 16-year MLB vet that accumulated a career 148 wins, 428 career ERA, and over 1,500 career strikeouts and 2,435 innings pitched. Yeah, my man was as durable as they come. He's an all-star, gold glove winner, and World Series champion. The man with the leg kick to the heavens, Mr. Free Love, Mr. Brunson Arroyo. What's up, man? I'm doing good. How y'all doing? Good, man. So is, is your nickname actually Free Love? Well, I never really, I never really had a... Uh... I never had a nickname that stuck. You know, when I was a kid, my father called me Flaco because my father was from Cuba and that was skinny in Spanish, right? And so if I, I know if I hear somebody in a stadium, you know, 30,000 yell Flaco, then I know they're from my hometown and they really don't. <laughs> but, but, you know, over the years that you're playing ball, you, you kind of get a nickname for a year or two or on one specific team and then it might change to something else. And um, Free Love was just one of the ones that I got from Mike uh, Harkey, who was a um, pitching coach I had with the Diamondbacks. And wind up being went back to the Yankees in the bullpen, and uh, he just he just felt my 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 attitude and my vibe, and he thought I was kind of like a hippie, and just he always <laughs> and I was just happy go lucky. So he cut, started calling me Free Love, and uh, so when we when we had to make those jerseys, I just really couldn't think of of, of a name that I'd ever been given that would be you know more more poignant than that. So I just put it on there. I love that, and that high leg kick you had, man, like that was legendary. And I need to ask, how did you get that high leg kick? Yeah, that was. That was bore out of uh, so it's I'm live I grew up in Key West, Florida as a young kid, right? My my on my father's side, um, they came from Cuba in the early '50s before Castro took over, and on my mother's side, they had been in the Keys since the 1800s. So um, I, I was on the, living in this small little island where um, you know baseball was taken seriously, and that kind of that Latin vibe was always there. And we were playing games when we were seven, eight, nine years old under the lights in the middle of town, and a lot of cars driving by, and you know it gave kind of a really like a, a more of a, of a professional atmosphere than you normally get in most little leagues. But, um, you know, it's 1984, 85, 86. I'm just starting to play baseball. And my father's got me in the weight room as a really young kid. And we got a, a little batting cage in the backyard. And I would throw to this tire on a, on a bucket um, that was cemented onto a bucket. And my parents were Mets fans. And so Dwight Good in 1984, 85 was an absolute stud. But those, those teams, right, he was – I mean, he struck out the year before that in a ball. He struck out 300 hitters. And so his high leg kick was just kind of what my childhood mind morphed out of it. And in the long run, it wind up being something that I used effectively because I was, you know, most people think of a leg kick in a way kind of like a, a, a Marichal or somebody who's just picking it up. And it looks like they're really kind of struggling to get it up. But what I was doing was using my foot as like a pendulum to flick my leg up. And so I wasn't using my hip flexor so much to get my leg up in the air. And so for me, it was just really relaxed and I didn't. 
um, it wasn't a str- it wasn't a struggle. It actually made it easier for me to make it deep into ball games. And I didn't know that my foot was out there by my face because it was just so relaxed and my hamstrings were loose enough to kind of handle it. And so it was just kind of this this thing that you started doing as a young kid, and it just morphed over time. I wish I had that flexibility that you had, man. I can't get my leg like over my hip. So <laughs> that that was really cool. And I want to kind of start out here, just kind of going back to when you were kind of coming out of high school and you were a baller, first of all, third all-time leading scorer at your high school, Hernando High School, which is pretty awesome. Um, but basically, I saw that you chose South Florida instead of taking offers from Georgia Tech and Georgia Southern. How come you went that route? Yeah, I wasn't, you know, nobody's ever talked to me really about high school basketball. That's funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I played basketball in high school just purely for the love of playing the game, you know, with my athletic ability. I I really, I never took the game serious. You know, I was, we were taking baseball serious my whole life and we're in that weight room, but I never even once sat with my father, I don't think, and and he even fed me jump shots, maybe once in a blue moon, but (laughs) playing on pure talent, you know, I was pretty athletic. I could jump out of the gym a little bit. And so it made it easy for me to kind of get to the hoop, but, um, I think I would have been, you know, basketball wise, I probably couldn't have played at a D1, I don't think, without really working on the craft. But I probably could have played at a D2 or something um, just because of my quickness and the jumping ability. But um, what was the back back part of the question you asked me? Oh, well, actually, before that part, did you have a three pointer in your game? Yeah, a little bit, but I was I wasn't really like a pure shooter. It was mostly, you know, playing from the perimeter as the three guy. Never really played with the back, my back to the basket, so it was like just being quicker than guys, being able to take a quick jab step and, and hitting jumpers from the free throw line was really kind of where my game was at. Can you okay. dunk? I could dunk back then. Yeah, no problem. It was, uh, you know, by the time I was a junior, I could dunk, dunk pretty easily. And by my senior year, it was, yeah, I mean, in Arizona Fall League, you know, guys, guys, um, you know, when you get older in baseball, guys tend to like rib you a little bit, right? It's like Mike Lee, Mike Lick, and uh, Matt Latos and guys like Homer Bailey. They're like, oh man, you're 38 years old. You're washed up. You're old, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was 40, I was doing, um, we were in Milwaukee. I think I was doing uh, MLB net or something on the camera. And Mark DeRosa is on that show. And so Mark DeRosa remembered me from 98. We played in the Arizona Fall League. And we used to go to 24-hour fitness every night um, that year that the NBA was on strike. And Mike Bibby would show up and he would shoot around on one end of the court. And we would play these full court games. And I was just jumping out of the gym, man. Just 362 hands. Just oh like, man! Oh man! And, and DeRosa was saying that on air, and so when I got back in the locker room, Amir Garrett was like, "Oh, I guess it is true." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to tell my father, "I'm like, when I'm 40, I'll be able to dunk." And uh, I'm 43 now, and I actually I can't dunk right now. I think if I got out on the court and played, you know, got your legs used to it, and 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 just had that that spring comes back if you work at it a little bit. But it, I haven't been on a basketball court in so long. I definitely can't dunk these days. Well, the, the back half I was going to ask for that question is when you finished balling in high school, you chose South Florida instead of Georgia Tech and Georgia Southern. I was just wondering what made you choose that over the other two schools? Yeah, I, I, it was at the time. I know the rules change and I don't know how it is now, but back then it was um, you had this w- window of like two weeks, I think, where you could early sign and you could go visit some schools. Um, in your junior year, after your junior year. So I wanted to take that opportunity. My father was really trying to push for me. Everybody from my hometown pretty much went to a junior college. They were always, for some reason, a little kind of skeptical of, of jumping into kind of the fire on a, on a Division One school. And we really wanted to go Division One and, and sign early and try to put some pressure on MLB teams to, to, to take me in the draft if they really wanted me. So I made my visits to Mississippi State and we did Georgia Tech and went to Georgia Southern and USF. And what really won over at USF was – you know, I didn't realize at the time, but 
Um, you know, football scholarships at big schools, it's, it's 100% scholarship for the player most of the time. Baseball is not like that. And so I really wanted to go to University of Florida. But um, at the time, they got the coach from Pepperdine who came in, and he was taken over for a guy named Joe Arnold who had been fired. And Joe really wanted me there. But when um, <clears throat> when the new coach came, he basically said to me, I can give you a 50% scholarship because I got a lot of JUCO guys I need to sign for 20, 30, 40% scholarships and try to get the program up quick because he needed a winner. And so it was a little disappointing just because when you start running the numbers, you know, it was going to be tough on your parents to really afford it. So USF was giving me about 85% scholarship. It was close to home. And I, I really loved the pitching coach that was there at the time named Mike Trapazzo. And so um, that really is what kind of led me to sign with USF. But in, in the same breath, I, I was never really intending to go to school. I would have if I would have been drafted super late. But, you know, I made good grades in school. And I was serious about my studies, but I knew how hard I had to work coming home from baseball games at night and having to try to do, you know, algebra two at 10 p.m. and just not being able to get sleep and stuff. So for me, I just wanted to go play baseball. And I felt like my skill set was good enough that I could do that. So, you know, I was looking to be drafted, hopefully high enough that I was going to be able to sign. Yeah, I mean, it worked out really well for you. I mean, you got picked in the third round in the 95 draft, debuted in 2000 and Started out with the Pirates, a little rocky, but then you went to Boston, and it seems like you picked things up pretty quickly once you went there, helped contribute in a nine-inning perfect game, the fourth uh, apparently in the 121 years of the International League, and you recorded a save that year too, 2.08 DRA. and I was just curious, was there like mechanical adjustments you made, pitch mix changes, increasing confidence, what kind of was the drastic leap from your time with Pittsburgh to when you went to Boston? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of it's it's a long road, you know, making it through the minor leagues and there's there's these evolutions of who you are as a person. I had a skill set basically from day 1 in the rookie league that I could have been successful, I believe at the big league level even if I didn't evolve a whole lot. The the early days with the Pirates, I was a winner all through the minor leagues. Every single year that I pitched basically, I think I had a winning record. One year I had a little bit of trouble with my elbow. And I wind up being 10 and nine, I think, in 98 in double uh, A. But otherwise, I was a winner. I, I was always, you know, uh, competing for the, for the lowest ERA in the league or, you know, had like a mid three. And in the minor leagues, they kind of left me alone. They, they let me be myself. They let me pick hitters apart with my brain. But when I when you get to the big league level, especially back then, there was no communication between the minor leagues and the big leagues. So you'd get to the big league level and they would have a totally different idea of how they wanted you to, to be successful. And in those early years with the Pirates, they would call me up and they would basically say, hey, Jason Kendall is our catcher. He's our golden boy in the organization. He's been here six years and he's already had five all stars and they really trusted in him. And um, in my mind, he was more of an offensive uh, catcher. He wasn't a guy who you know, was on the, on the defensive end, he was fine, but, but, you know, he was used to guys that were more one dimensional. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a guy who pitched outside of the box and pitched so backwards and they forced me into a box with those guys. And so for those first few years, every time I'd come to the big leagues, it was a little difficult. And also your opportunities were very limited. You know, I, I pitch a good game and beat Tom, I remember I beat Tom Glavin in, in um, 2002, I believe in Atlanta after getting called up from AAA, I beat him three to one. We get back home in Pittsburgh and they're going to send me uh, to the bullpen. And it was, you know, we were on pace to lose 100 games that year, and everybody on, on TV for the Braves was like, what are they doing? You know, this kid is a perfect opportunity to pitch him every fifth day, and instead they're going to put him in the bullpen. And so it was just it was difficult for me to really get any kind of traction in the big leagues at the time. I get over to Boston, and they don't know me, and they just ran their organization completely different. 
you know, when you when you're when you're when you're with one organization in baseball, you think the whole league runs that way. And when I got over to Boston, I realized that they were much further ahead of the curve than the Pirates were. The Pirates were kind of stuck in a time capsule of the 70s and the 80s. I mean, they were telling me when I was 6'4", 150 pounds to get out of the weight room. They would tell me <laughs> they would tell me that going to the acupuncture or going to the chiropractor was like witchcraft voodoo like what are you doing they you know they would jump my case for taking a nap before i pitched it was like they were so stuck in in these old days and i had been in the weight room with my father who was taking me to the chiropractor when i was a five-year-old kid and getting me a full body massage because we were trying to be you know um as good of athletes as we could be and 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 it was like i was going back in time and so um it just made it difficult you know in in those first few years so i get over to boston though and they were more on top of their game they were more cutting edge they understood that you couldn't run us into the ground every day that guys needed the opportunity to to have some 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 easy days in spring training and not you know kill them the whole time. And so um, when I get to Boston, things start falling into place as if I feel comfortable on the mound at the big league level, like I did in the minor leagues. And that was really kind of the whole linchpin because just but being comfortable between your ears is so important because you're already competing against the best players in the world, and 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 you got Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire standing in the box, and you've idolized these guys since you're a kid and just that in itself can be tough enough. And so um, you need people on your side who believe in you and the pirates, they weren't quite there with me at the big league level. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you say that because we, one of the guys we talked to uh, back before baseball season started this year, we talked to Matt caps who pitched for the pirates in 2005. And um, he broke out when he went to the nationals kind of, you know, he, he had like, you know, a couple good years there, but he really, he became an all-star with the nets. And he kind of said some similar things to what you were saying that he kind of didn't feel like he kind of unleashed his true potential when he was with the organization. So it's kind of interesting that at least back then that they didn't kind of weren't with the times apparently what all these other teams were doing. So interesting point when you said that. Yeah, it is. And, and sometimes, you know, you get surprised, you know, there, there's teams also like the Yankees who obviously have been perennial winners. And and I'll ask guys in that locker room, like, how is it being over there? They must be cutting edge with all the technology. And they're like, no way, man. They're like, they're old school over here, man. You walk in the training room and you get two Advil and they tell you to go home. It's like, you know, and then <laughs> with the Diamondbacks and, and, you know, they're breaking out every new modern machine you've ever seen in your life. And, and, um, and they're trying to give that to the players. And so, you know, it comes from a place where I think baseball in its inception was very slow to change. You know, you had people who were running these organizations and they didn't, they wanted to do what they were taught when they came into the game. And, and, and that's why you saw baseball just be really behind the eight ball when it came to just physical fitness, really, in comparison to basketball and baseball. I mean, football. Right. And go ahead, Art. Yeah, Bronson, I'm sorry to, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you about playing for Terry Francona, a guy who's still out there managing at the top levels. What is it about Terry Francona, guy who I saw in the Michael Jordan documentary this summer as well, uh, that makes him such a great MLB manager? You know, he's super loose. That's, that's, that's one thing, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a way that some managers are that they make you feel like they're part player. They make you feel like they're pulling for you to get a new contract that they're pulling for you to do well. And then there's other managers who make you feel like they're part of management. They make you feel like the principal when you're in seventh grade and he's calling you in and you're in trouble. Right. And the guys who can keep it loose and can really relate with the players the best on a personal level are the guys that people want to play for. And Terry has always been that guy. He's a bit of a jokester. He loves shenanigans. You know, he comes to the park loose every day. doesn't matter how many games you lose or how many games you win. He's kind of the same guy 
if he does have a meeting, it's once in a blue moon. And what he says, he takes, you know, he takes the heart and, and he hits you with it quickly, but he moves on quickly as well. He doesn't kind of harp on it. He doesn't make you feel like because you got your butt kicked on the mound last night that you're a bad guy. Right. And he's still going to say hi to you. He's still going to ask you about your fantasy team. On <laughs> September, Right. Those are the kinds of things. And, and Tito, I remember one time, it's funny that one time I was up in the weight room with Millar. It's 2004, and it's like 10 minutes before game time, and I'm up in the weight room finishing up a few things, and Millar's stretching out, and here comes Francona. He's like he's like beelining to Millar, and he's just like – he's like, Kevin, Kevin, come here, man. He's like, come here. He was like, It was almost like he was frantic, like, hey, we got to do something to change the lineup or something. And I said, what's going on? And he's like, I need to make a trade with you on my fantasy football team. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> he's like, no way this is happening right now. But, uh, you know, that that's what makes Tito who he is, and it, and it makes it – fun to come to the ballpark for a guy who really, you know, gets it. Bronson, it sounds like you were a big fan of Tito and you had a quote, uh, I believe it was before the season saying that there's a disconnect between the front office and clubhouse um, that, you know, a lot of times, like you've kind of talked about, it's the principal versus the students. What do you think is the solution? Is it as simple as general managers making an effort to get to know their players? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's guys coming down and having a little bit more face time and also, I think given a little bit more, uh, you know, given a little bit more of, of, of a leash or, a little, you know, giving more trust to the players. Right. I mean, management seems to think that players play the game and that they're well suited to do that, but they're not well suited to make decisions when it comes to players. Right. And and it doesn't make any sense, because if you take, you know, your top, let's say, two or three guys in a rotation, they're going to be able to tell you whether Miguel Cairo or, you know, some other player, uh, you know, Matt Carpenter is harder to get out, right? It's like, I can tell you the guys that are gritty. I can tell you the guys that, you know, the David Eckstein's of the world that you hate facing because they're like a little gnat and they put the button down. <laughs> they move the ball to the other side. And you, you can tell what a winner's like. Also, you know, we hang with the players at night away from the field. And baseball, and just like in any other job, there's a certain face you put on at the ballpark. And sometimes there's a different face away from that medium, right? And so, you know, when you go out with guys at night, you have a drink and you're you're hanging in your room late night playing some music and whatever it is, you get to know these guys on a different level sometimes than you get inside that locker room. And um, you get that wall down a little bit about their insecurities. And so there's no reason for management not to be asking players, at least just to tap into their brains before they make these decisions. And um, part of it is just that those guys, they, they, they rarely ever come down. And, and I think I also think it's probably on the players end too. You know, I mean, we kind of brush those guys off like they brush the media off sometimes and they don't get to know the guys in the front office either. So it's probably a little bit on both sides, but I think it would definitely benefit organizations if there was a little bit more camaraderie there. And when I played, I tried to throw team parties and sometimes, you know, I remember I threw a team party in Arizona one time and, and, and some of the trainers, you know, were acting a little finicky because the GM was there. And I was like, dude, have a drink, relax, bro. I'm like, so I called over Walt Jockett. I'm like, Walt, would you tell this guys they can have a drink, man? I'm like, I'm pretty sure we're all pulling on the same rope trying to win a world series here. And I don't think it's the end of the world. These guys loosen up for a night, you know? And so, um, which he had no problem with, but a lot of times people don't talk about this stuff and they don't put it on the table. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I do want to dive back into your playing career a little bit here and, I'm sure this is probably the question you get asked one of the most. The 2004 World Series, or 2004 ALCS, excuse me, and you and A-Rod, that whole play that went down where he's running to first base, and I had to rewatch it because I remember when it happened originally, but when I, we were talking about you coming on and I just rewatched it again, I was like, how did that even like happen? Because 
A-Rod thinking that he could hit the ball out of your glove and think that he was be safe in any capacity is just, were you shocked when he did that? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, um, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, just like you said, it was like, it was like a guy running off the sidelines and catching a touchdown pass and be like, oh, I guess that's going to count. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it was so outlandish. I literally, if you, if you watch the tape, you'll see me squatted down. Doug Mankiewicz comes over and he asked me, hey, are you okay? Because he, you know, he thought he hit my arm pretty hard. And I was like, yeah, I'm cool. And I just kind of sat there in awe. And I was looking around. And I, the only thing I could think about was there's six umpires here. Normally we have four. There's six umpires here. Somebody had to have seen that, right? It was so obvious. There's no way this can slide by. And uh, it was definitely a strange play because what happened was I throw him a slow breaking ball. He hits it right off the end of the bat and it's spinning like a top. And because it's spinning so fast is all I can think about is make sure this ball doesn't shoot out of my glove. And so I'm just really focused on the ball and I'm assuming I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to flip the ball to Minkiewicz. No problem. We got Jeter on second base and there's an out. Well, when I grab the ball and look up, Doug's standing right next to me in the heat of the moment. You know, he probably forgot who was on the mound and how quick I was off the mound or just he wanted to come get the ball because it was a big situation. And um, I just realized there was no way for him to beat Alex back to the bag. So I was going to have to make the tag. Well, when I looked up, Alex was kind of jogging. He didn't he wasn't really running hard. And so because of that, I just relaxed and I was just going to tag him nice and easy. And, uh, you know, he took that opportunity to try to <laughs> pull a rabbit out of a hat somehow. I'm not really sure why why he, why he that came to his mind. I mean, obviously, it couldn't have been premeditated. It was just something in that moment that told him to do that. Yeah, that, that was nuts. Um, I am interested. I'm a very big – I love studying pitching. And so I kind of just, like, looked over your pitch mixes. And you can kind of tell me if I'm wrong with the approach it seems like you took. You threw a high 80s – average fastball like that was around your average mile per hour but you had a lot of bite and you spotted it really well which i think is lost in today's game with the heaters and just kind of throwing the ball up in the zone but you threw a slider that moved away from right-handed hitters a straight change through your curveball that was looked like your top pitch and the thing is that you threw it from multiple arm angles at any count which i think is uh is really cool because hitters didn't know it was coming is that is that kind of roughly how you would describe your pitch mix you would think yeah, I just the, 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 all the pitches that they counted as sliders was basically was my that same breaking ball curveball that I was just changing angles on. So in my mind, I was just throwing a curveball. I never really threw a true slider. But yeah, that's that's basically it. I mean, if it wasn't for my breaking ball, there's no way I last in the big leagues very long. You know, it was it was what would get me back into counts. It, it, it's what made, um, you know, there's some guys like an Aaron Harang. I played with Aaron in 2006 and seven. And he used to throw, you know, 88, 89, 90-mile-an-hour fastballs as straight as a string on the outer half to every righty, and they just couldn't hit it. And it was – for those two years, it was it would just blow my mind because if I threw the same pitches, they would get killed. And, um, you know, my fastball was never super elusive, right? I had to use it as kind of a surprise pitch. So I kind of flipped the tables on the game, and I was going to give you this big breaking ball strike one. You know, I was going to sneak a fastball in there, and I, I was just – I was playing this chess match of you never knowing what I would throw in any count. And – the only way to do that is if you feel confident in multiple pitches, um, being able to pull it out at any time, no matter what the situation, whether it's bases loaded as a 3-1 count, right on right matchup, can you throw an inside changeup to Albert Pujols, right? That's how I lived and died. And sometimes, you know, it got you beat. But if it wasn't for me playing that, really that that game, there's just no way that my skill set was good enough to go head-to-head with major league hitters for 15 years. It just wasn't. Bronson. Um, if, if, if I, if you don't mind me asking, there's something I, I realized when you were with Boston, you're on a staff with Kurt Schilling, Pedro Martinez, Tim Wakefield, uh, guys who all hall of famers, 15, 20 year careers. And you're a young guy, your fourth or fifth man on the staff. 
you get traded to Cincinnati. Was it something that you knew you could lead a staff or when you got to Cincinnati, you were like, wait a second, I know how to lead a staff. I can do this. I can take this team to the next level. Was that, uh, or was, was that experience of being behind those three or four great veterans? How did that prepare you to lead a staff in Cincinnati? Well, it, it, it playing it, just playing for the Red Sox in general, you know, playing those high level pressure situations, playing against the Yankees, playing in Fenway Park felt like a, a, a playoff game every night. I mean, it didn't matter if it was a Tuesday against the Orioles and they were losing 95 games. I mean, it always felt like if you pitched bad, you're going to go to a restaurant and people are going to look at you like there was something wrong with you. Right. And so the intensity that New England brought to that ballpark really prepared me for everything that the game had to offer from the World Series Game 7 all the way down. And and I, I didn't get that, obviously, in Pittsburgh. We never played for a playoff contention spot. And so, you know, pitching on that on that staff, like you said, I mean, you have Schilling, Pedro, you've got Wakefield, and then you got Derek Lowe, right? And Derek yeah. Lowe got 125 yeah. wins. He saves 40 twice. So, you know, I had an unbelievable career compared to, you know, anybody else who walked the planet. I'm still last trailing compared to all four of those <laughs> guys and, and um i laugh about it to this day i mean I, you know i have 84 wins in the minor leagues which none of those guys could even touch i mean they, they left me <laughs> a long time and that was part of the reason why i couldn't contend for about 200 wins but but um playing on that staff what it did was by the time i got traded to cincinnati i wasn't really thinking about leading a staff because i had never i had never been the top of the heat now i had led staffs all in the minor leagues with my consistency right i mean you, you know what it's like to be on a staff when when your team behind you knows you have a chance to win that night, right? And I was always that guy in the minor leagues. I, I took the ball every fifth day. I never missed a start. And they knew that I'd probably keep them in the ball game two out of every three times out. And that's all I was looking to do. So when I got to Cincinnati, I walked in that locker room. And the first thing Jerry Naren, he called me in the office and he said, hey, Bronson, listen. He goes, I know you're pissed. He goes, I know you want to stay in Boston. He said, um, I know you don't want to be here. But he goes, the guys in this locker room, he said, are just so happy to have you know, a major league starter that they can depend on. He said, we don't have starting pitching here. That's healthy. Aaron Harang is our number one. And after that, it's a bunch of question marks with guys like Eric Milton and if they're going to be healthy enough to really perform. And so um, I just kind of walked in there with not knowing what I was going to get. And I just wanted to keep producing like I had the last two years before. But as time went on and I realized how much, you know, that I meant to that kind of the cohesiveness of this team. And as we started building the young staff with Joey Votto and Jay Bruce and Johnny Cueto and Mike Leak, and the guys started coming up the pipeline, I, I started taking on the role of being the mentor and the guy who was going to show them what it was like to be a professional. And, and it was really what fueled my fire in the game because once I got established, it was about this skinny guy being able to pitch 200 innings year after year and see if other guys could do that as well. And, um, you know, it, I kind of pulled the train a little bit for guys like Johnny Cueto to be like, Hey bro, you can't keep up with a little skinny white kid. You throw 95. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> right? And after a long period of time, they realized that when they walked past the weight room and, and Pearl Jam was playing that Bronson was in there and he never missed a day ever, you know? And, and so I really got to enjoy my time in Cincinnati because of that. Bronson, it sounds like Boston has a special place in your heart. And I, I've, you know, from the athletes we've talked to that have played with the Red Sox, it sounds like everybody loves being a part of that team. You gave them a hometown discount in 2005. You were 28, and this probably at the time was the last chance at a big contract. And even when it against your agent's advice, why did you do that? Yeah, you know, I was, it was, um, 
you know, I was a young guy. I had never signed a multi-year deal. I, I made my first uh, arbitration the year before, and I think I was making one, $1.9 million or one eight, one of the two, in 2005. And then I was going to be up for second-year arbitration. And that, you know, everybody was telling me that, that I, you know, I was the youngest guy on the staff. I had, think I had the most quality starts in 2005. And I was really establishing myself as to be a, you know, a solid number three or four in the game. Right. And everybody could see the handwriting on the wall. So my agents were basically saying, Hey, you know, if you sign this deal, you're going to make yourself the most tradable guy in the game. But, you know, I tend to trust in people and I'm not that skeptical. You know, you have to kind of burn me once before I, before I don't trust in you. And so Terry Francona called me um, and basically said, look, if you take this hometown discount, I know it's probably a little less than you want, but it's going to help the organization. You're going to be able to get some other guys signed. Um, you know, I loved playing in Boston. I didn't want to go anywhere else. I loved playing at the place where when you showed up to the ballpark, the fans walked in like they were going to see the Beatles re- reunited, right? And you just don't get that anywhere else in the game, including Yankee Stadium. It just, It's just not there. And so – um, I just knew I was playing in a place that that was just like a rock show every night. And I wanted to do that. And other people were leaving because of that. They were complaining because people knew their face too much around town. And I enjoyed going to a restaurant and people standing up and cheering. Right. It was like it's what I lived my whole life for. It was like, you know, I'm not going to complain about people calling my name on the street because this is what I came to do. And um, so I, 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 I said to them straight up, I said, look, I'm signing this deal. And I said, against everyone else's advice, and it's not to be traded to the Tampa Bay Devil Rays for Julio Lugo in five days. <laughs> I remember where I was. I was in my car. I was driving to Gainesville, Florida to play a little music show for a buddy. And um, they said, Jed Hoyer told me, we have no plans of uh, trading you anytime soon. So I get to spring training. I pitch, and I was having a good spring near the end. I was kind of getting dialed in. I'm like, perfect. I was uh, ready to go. And um, I got a call from Theo. Theo Theo was gone when I signed, but he came back after that. And Theo just said, uh, man, I got something I want to t- I don't want to tell you, Bronson. And as soon as he said that, I knew he had traded me. And, uh, you know, that was that was probably I mean, honestly, in my whole life, that was probably the, 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 the biggest jab anybody's ever given me, man, between whether a girlfriend cheated on you or, uh, you know, if people drop dead. That that one that one hurt for a while. That one stung. I mean, I had a hard time really focusing on the Cincinnati Reds for the first few weeks of the season because it it, it just blew me away that that I wasn't in that uniform still. Yeah, I mean, your Reds career. I, I understand like the Boston connection, but you were able to carve out a good career in Cincinnati. One of the things I noticed, uh, I did not realize we, with how durable you were and how many innings you pitched. I did not know you had carpal tunnel syndrome in 2009. Then you had uh, mononucleosis in 2011. And then you had Tommy John surgery in 2014. But you were still able to pitch all these innings. Um, do you feel like if you kind of, if those hadn't piled up that, I mean, your your statistics could have been like astronomical? No, I mean, I, I would have basically... You know, I, I maximized what I had, honestly, um, up until the time when I had surgery. Up up until 2014, from, from there on, I, I only pitched 14 uh, starts in that season, and I pitched 14 starts in 2017. But up until that time, I went, like, with the minor leagues, I went 450-something starts without missing a game and pitched some bullpen time. Um, but, you know, my ego lied. It didn't really lie on in, in, like, winning a bunch of baseball games. It was I loved the fact of the durability. You know, 2000 and 
I always thought that way. I knew I was kind of underhanded when it came to just being a big, strong guy. I was always thin, you know, and, and Kurt Schilling told me, you know, in the, in the weight room in spring training of 2004, he basically, he chewed me out for being out drinking one night. And um, he said, basically, you know, you and young, young Kim are going for the fifth spot in the rotation and you're, you're, you're giving it away, this, that, and the other thing. And at the end of that conversation, he said, you can't throw 230 innings with your body anyway. And I said, why? And he said, because you're too thin, too light. So that was, um, that was in 04. So by 06, when I go over to um, Cincinnati, I had 233 innings with a start left to go. And so I, I sent, I sent, I sent her to Nate my 10 to the clubhouse of me naked with just a, <laughs> with a long, with a long white sanitary sock hanging off of, off of my shit. And, um, and I, wrote, I wrote 230 plus on the sock in black Sharpie. And then I wrote, I wrote my 10. I said, I said, Kurt, I said, you told me in 2004 that I couldn't throw 230 innings with this body. Um, I said, you should know better than anybody. It's not how much you weigh. It's what you got hanging between your legs. And, uh, <laughs> Yo, and uh, Brunson, but that is awesome. But what that, you know, so that was where my ego lived was to survive the game every fifth day. And so mm-hmm. I had, I had carpal tunnel. I didn't, I didn't realize it, but in 2004, it was driving me mad. I didn't know what was going on, but my fingers were falling asleep. And it was really bad during the playoffs. After I beat Anaheim um, and we clinched that series, um, before the Yankees series, I was that night I was messing around playing a lot of guitar with the guys from um, from Creed, which there was another band called Alter Bridge with a, with a different singer. And me and Johnny Dan were hanging out that night. And, and in Boston, I felt so indebted to the fans that I would sign a ton of autographs. And, and me pinching that pen and that pick of the guitar and those two fingers, I guess, just gave me carpal tunnel. But I didn't know what was going on at the time. I didn't figure it out till about 2008. And so it would make it really hard for me to throw my breaking ball for strikes. And I had a hard time spinning the ball. So, um, you know, that, that one season that I had that in spring training, that was driving me mad. And I got a cortisone shot the day before I was supposed to make my start to open up the season. And I remember asking one of the reporters, um, John Fay, who would always be a little pessimistic. I said, I said, John, you think I'm going to make my start tomorrow? And he was like, no chance, man. And I said, well, I'm going to pitch and I pitched and I wind up winning the game. But, um, you know, I was banged up a lot of times, but I just refused to not go out there. And so I think part of that also gave me um, gave my arm a beating in 2014 that I had a hard time coming back from because I broke the ligament in my elbow about um, six starts before I finally shut it down. My shoulder was torn at the same time. So I had a torn shoulder and the ligament in my elbow was broke and I pitched six straight starts, but I was winning. But by the end, I was throwing 75 miles an hour. And Kirk Gibson was like, hey, man, I, I got to get you out of the game, man. You can't even throw 80 miles an hour. And I was like, yeah, I know. This is going to be my last start. Just leave me in here. I wind up beating back at 2-1 to one in Dodger Stadium like that. And and um, then after that, I never really was the same. But but up until that time, it was 19 and a half years of health and finding a way to get out on the mound. That's what made me who I was in the game. Please tell me on that 8-10 to 10 that you gave to Kurt Schelling is when you had cornrows. Uh, no, I didn't have them in at the time. It was, no, they were they were out because I st- I'm the, I'm the only person who has that picture, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure the, the other one that I printed got thrown away, but I still have the digital copy of it. And, uh, what, what made you want to grow cornrows? Oh, uh, the cornrows started long before that. Started in the pirate days. The cornrows. Uh, I was playing in Nashville and AAA uh, for the Pirates, and we had some guys that I'd come up with in the organization. Uh, a kid named Alex Hernandez. And uh, there was four or five guys from Dominican and Puerto Rico, and one of the wives was doing cornrows. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to throw them in for fun. And then I'd get called to the big leagues, and Lloyd McClendon was my manager, and he'd call me in the office and just, like, chew me out. He'd be like, 
what do you got in your hair, you pumpkin pie hair? He'd be like, I'll send your ass to A-ball. He'd be smashing the desk and stuff. He was pissed. And I, and in my mind, I was thinking, I got the same thing in my head that Pokey Reese has in his head. Why aren't you jumping his shit, you know? <laughs> but for whatever reason, I was a young guy. He, you know, they demanded respect in that locker room and they thought I was nuts. You know, they, they thought I was, they thought I was kind of like a, they thought I was like a hippie man who played the guitar, who, you know, liked to smoke a joint and just didn't take the game very serious. And it took a long time for people to figure out that my happy-go-lucky didn't have anything to do with me preparing for the game and how serious I was about the game. It was just that I had an easier time brushing off the losses than they did. So then mm-hmm. when they saw a smile on my face three hours after the game, when I got my butt kicked, they thought I didn't care. But the truth of it was, is that I cared enough not to carry that load. I couldn't do anything about. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, they preached that kind of shit, but because I lived it, they, they, they couldn't understand it. And so it took years for guys like Lloyd McClendon to come up to me and shake my hand after battling Justin Verlander head to head in Cincinnati and pitching better than him that night. And for them to say, Hey man, you've had a hell of a career. And, you know, they were basically saying without saying it back in the day in, the, in your pirate days, we got it wrong. Like we should have just let you be and just let you pitch. Keep yeah. I have a friend who's a lifelong pirates fan who said, uh, ask him why he was so mishandled by the pirates. And I said, I, I don't even know if he thinks he was mishandled by the pirates. Do you think that, there was, that you could have developed in the Pirates as you did if the, if, if, the, if you hadn't moved on from them? Cheesecake, yeah. he answered that question. you yeah. got to listen. Not, at, not, at, not at, at the minor league level, they did me right. You know, they, they, okay. you know people are always tinkering with you, right? They're trying to get the best out of you. But people realized pretty quickly that I could, I could throw strikes, right? That was not – that's not – a lot of guys at the big league level can't even throw strikes. So I could throw strikes from, from an age of 18. I could throw a breaking ball behind in the count for a strike. So there's a couple of things I really checked the boxes on. And then I was competitive. I was athletic. I could feel my position. I could run the bases. I could put the ball in play a little bit. So they kind of left me alone, and I was always a winner. But at the big league level, they wanted to kind of be like, you need to do it this other way. And they just didn't realize how, how different and how odd I was. Had they left me just completely alone at the big league level and said, Bronson, call your own game like you've been doing your whole career, and we're not going to say a word to you, um, I think I w- it would have been difficult to have a really good season on those teams because we, we didn't have good ball clubs. But there's no doubt in my mind that I could have competed. I could have pitched 200 innings, and I think I could have probably played 500 ball. I think I could have pulled out a 10 and 10 season, uh, you know, with a 4-2 ERA or something like that on those teams. And I would have figured it out just like I did. It would just would have come a year or two earlier, and I think my big league numbers would look a little bit better. But, um, you know, it was it's trial and error for a lot of these guys, man. You don't realize it, but when your manager's 35 years old or 40 mm-hmm. years old, he just got out of the game a couple years ago, these guys don't have all the answers either. Yeah, we're talking with 16-year MLB vet, all-star, gold glover, and cornrow master, Brunson Arroyo here. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, so we just got a last couple questions here for you. Um, I want to talk about post-playing career, and I guess during your career, actually, too. You play a lot of guitar, and your debut album um, came out covering the bases. I've also heard you on YouTube, uh, your Everlong cover. And like, it's legit. Like I I was blown away. Like take away the the fact that you like played baseball, you're an athlete, whatever. Like I thought that was incredible. Um, And I saw that you also did, uh, you had, you covered big bands. You had Dirty Water. You did with Johnny Damon, Kevin Euclid and uh, Lenny DiNardo. You taught Kevin Millar how to play guitar. And you also helped with the vocals for, I think one of the best songs, Tessie, that I used to always play on MVP Baseball 2005. So I just... 
Can you tell me a little bit about your background with music and just kind of, if, are you still playing now and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I, uh, I picked up an acoustic guitar in 99. I was in double A with the Pirates in a small town called Altoona, Pennsylvania. Um, the clubhouse guy, um, you know, for people who don't know what a clubhouse guy is, there's one guy in the minor leagues who cleans your uniforms at night, sleeps in the clubhouse usually because it's long hours. They put the food out for you. They're, and uh, there's, there's multiple of those guys at the major league level, but in the minor leagues, you just have one. And um, this kid named Jake, he had this guitar. I was holding it for the very first time and I didn't know anything about it. And the assistant general manager of that club walked through the clubhouse and said, hey, I've got this old Yamaha guitar. If you want it, Bronson, I'll give it to you. I said, sure, I'd love to have it. And um, I had a real musical family, but I'd never done anything with music at all. I'd never played anything. And I never sang really in the shower even, but I heard it my whole life in the house. And so I took to the guitar pretty easily. Um, not super easy, but easier than most, especially with my right hand and with the rhythm, which a lot of guys have trouble with. And so I just wanted to play songs that I loved listening to. And, and it went back to when I was 15, 16 and 17, which was Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, all the stuff coming out of Seattle. And so as I, as I started, you know, working on that guitar, it took me about a year to really be able to play some of these songs like Matchbox 20 and stuff. And, and I just, uh, I just got addicted to it. It was, it was um, the only thing in my life that I felt like I couldn't do without other than baseball. And so I just, I just slowly started playing. And uh, by the time I get to Boston, I, I go to a show in 2003 that was called Hot Stove Cool Music, which Peter Gammons and Theo Epstein put on every year to raise money for Theo's charity called um, Foundation to be Named Later. And they're still doing this to this day. And it's been 20 years now. And, and, and um, I showed up that night and Peter Gammon said, Hey, don't you play the guitar? And I said, yeah. And he said, you want to jump up and play one? I mean, this is a packed, a packed, I mean, oversold rock theater, you know, a legendary rock theater in Boston called the paradise. And I jump up on the stage and play black by Pearl jam. And after that, the media was just so kind of rabid about it, asking me when I started playing and this and that, that um, it led to that, that covering the basis record. And so I really didn't know, you know, I still feel like I'm very green, when it comes to um, playing music, right? It's it's a whole craft that I'm not fantastic at. I'm, I'm a decent, you know, for a baseball player, for a major league baseball player, I mean, I, you know, I'm really good, right? I'm, I'm, I'm probably, you know, I mean, I'm fantastic for a major league baseball player, but that's because most guys don't play at all. And if they do play, they usually don't sing. So the guys who do both, it's like, you know, Jake Peavy, um, Bernie Williams is a fantastic musician, but he doesn't sing. But, you know, it's few and far between that a guy can yeah. sing. Yeah. And, and make an hour show go. And so, um, but as a pure musician, I'm still just in the infant stage, you know what I mean? But I'm pl I play all the time now. I've got, um, I'm either playing in the basement, I've got a band in Cincinnati. We still play a lot of cover songs and play about 20 shows a year. I've got an original band in LA that I'm working on a record um, that got kind of a pause because of COVID. We we're about 60% done with it probably. And, um, you know, it's nice to get up on the stage still because I, I found, I find that it's, the only way I can feel like I'm still on a baseball on, on a baseball field, right? It's like listening to the national anthem and getting those butterflies, knowing that you got to face Albert Pujols here in about two minutes, is uh, something that's hard to duplicate in life. But me standing on a stage in front of you know 500 people at a rock club and knowing that I got to deliver these goods and I got to remember these words and you're going to try to put on a performance and is your voice going to last tonight and are you going to give them a good show and all that adrenaline that's kind of flowing through you is is very similar and so you know it, it's 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 one of the two probably most important things in my life that and probably playing golf. You know, I, I, I I'm grinding on that game and, um, but you got to have something, man, guys who played at the level I played at, you've got to have something to turn you on. And the music thing for me is where it's at. 
Do you guys ever come to Maryland, like D.C. or Baltimore to play? You know, over the last, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get people to come out to a show. Like just, and I don't mean for me, I'm talking about, you know, for guys that I know have three number one hits, right? It's, yeah. it's tough. You know, music is something that's an opinion and it's very trend based. Right. And, and they're the kid, the kids are what make it go. The young kids, if they like whatever's going on in the world, that's what makes it go. Right. And uh, so it's not easy to pull a thousand people into an, into an arena for a guy like me. And so over the years, mostly we play around Cincinnati and we played in new England. We usually do a little summer thing in new England. And even then sometimes you're playing at a, at a bar or a club and it's only 75 people show up and, and um, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, I would love to sit in the theater, you know, in a perfect world, I'd sit in, I'd love to sit in a seated theater with about three or 400 people every night and have something going on on the screen. That's, you know, showing what, what songs you're playing and have, you know, mini orchestra with me, which I've done in the past, but um, it's just not easy to get people excited about, you know, music, unless you're Bruno Mars or Taylor Swift, right. Or, or Paul McCartney. And so, so I don't get to play, you know, in those arenas as much as I would like to. But either way, just sitting around a campfire, honestly, there's just no way I can survive without having an acoustic guitar in my hand these days. Well, you've got three people that will buy tickets right here. So there's three people coming to the uh, show. And well, then we'll uh, all tell a friend and they'll tell friends. <laughs> well, if, listen, if I get this original record done, hopefully when COVID slows down, um, it, it might be the first time. I've never written original songs, really. And uh, I finally did. And I've been relatively happy with with what's gone on so far. So I'm hoping to get that done. And there might be a, a time when I can get, uh, you know, where you start lapping the, the, the country and you do the early morning radio stations and play small shows and see if you can open up for somebody else or find some sort of traction somewhere. And it's, it's you know, it's probably not going to work out exactly the way I want to. You know, 43-year-olds don't make it as rock stars uh, generally. But um but for me, music will be part of my life for the rest of my life. And, and it's, a, it's a good meat and potatoes of kind of what makes me go. I love that. And we'll get you out of here on this. will be our last question here. And what we like to do when we have athletes come on here, just give them a little bit of a rapid fire. So it's kind of like a this or that. So kind of these questions might be if you were smoking a joint, your buddy <laughs> might ask you kind of questions. Oh, my God. So, he said that. <laughs> so 10 quick ones here. Number one, would you rather pitch a shutout? Or be crowd surfed after a rock performance? Uh, pitch a shutout. All right. Would you rather have Sprite or Mountain Dew? Sprite. Lex Luthor or the Joker? Ooh, Lex Luthor. Really? Okay. All right. That's a different one. Um, would you rather be stranded on an island alone or with the person you hate the most? With the person I hate the most. All right. Would you rather rewind or pause your life? I would pause it. Okay. I like that. Brunson, you're, you're a man that I can respect these answers. These, I like these. Um, number six, would you rather be strong but look frail or be frail and look strong? I would definitely rather be strong and look frail. Yeah. Okay. Um, would you rather be able to speak to animals or speak every language? Uh, I'll take every language. That's All right. A good question. Would you rather eat brownies with the chance that there's a rock in them or eat an entire jar of mayonnaise? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take my chances on, on, on cracking that rock with my tooth. <laughs> Brunson does not like the mayo. Uh, I, like, I like mayonnaise, but not a whole darn jar, man. That's terrible. <laughs> 
Number nine, fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck. Ooh, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take the the hundred. I'm gonna take the small hundred. Okay, so most people say the one horse-sized duck. I like the hundred. No, you, a horse-sized duck is probably gonna be so strong. He's just gonna just destroy you immediately. <laughs> Snap your head off like he's freaking Tyrannosaurus Rex, man. <laughs> See, I, I. So, what would you do with the hundred? Then would you just like kick them around if yeah. they were all like coming at you? I hope to survive. Just yeah, just because I'd be so much bigger and stronger than them. Do the same thing to them that I think that one big duck would do to me. Yeah, <laughs> he, he does. He does the high leg kick and he knocks five <laughs> at a time. We go bowling. That's what it is. That's right. We're bowling. <laughs> That's great. Last one. Your clothes, would you rather your clothes be two sizes too big or one size too small? Definitely one size too small, man. I tell you what, looking back on the old days, man, and still some of the suits I have now and how big and baggy we used to wear this stuff, it was ridiculous. I'm like, you watch that documentary with Michael Jordan and see the stuff he was wearing with Scotty Pippen. Yeah. Yeah. Whoever came up with this style, man, in, in baseball, it was it was Biggio, Bagwell, and um, who was the third killer B over there? It was um, Biggio, Bagwell, and uh, Berkman and Bell, or Bell over in Houston yeah. that started wearing the pants huge. And then all of a sudden everybody's wearing huge pants and huge suits. And now you look back on it. And it's like, gosh, that was so terrible. Why were we doing that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm with you, Brunson. I feel like if you wear those, it's just like, if you wear them small, you can like look like you like work out and stuff too. So it's like as an extra benefit to it. Right. Absolutely. Well, Brunson, I'll, we, I'll, we, I'll take medium, especially now that I'm just playing music. <laughs> That's why the sleeves of this shirt are cut off, man. It's like a 1970s thing, right? It's like stand up on the stage and play the guitar. You got to let your little your gun show, even if they're only size 12s like mine. <laughs> Brunson, we're going to bring the Schmedium to market. Like there's – I don't know any clothing company that has them, and we need to do it. No doubt. No doubt. Um, but, Brunson, we really want to thank you so much for coming on. It was a real privilege being able to talk to you today. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys, man. It's uh, I, I did quite a few of these during COVID, and I hadn't done one in a little while, but uh, you guys were on top of your game, man. You asked me some stuff that I haven't gotten from anybody else, so good stuff. That's awesome. awesome. Thank you so much, man. If you want to see more of Brunson, make sure you check out his Instagram, BrunsonArroyo61. The man's just a man of adventure, and uh, he's a great follow if you want to go check out some fun stuff he's doing. Also, check out some of the great music he has. You can find – I've checked on YouTube. Is there other places they can find your music as well? No, not right now. Actually, they—they. They, uh, it's funny. Like, it's weird. Uh, I have my own Pandora station. You can put in Bronson Arroyo music, uh, Bronson Arroyo, for a Pandora station, and that pops up. But as far as like selling a record anywhere, it's weird. Like, I'm not on the radar anymore. But as I get into this original music, I'll start piecemealing that stuff back together, and hopefully, people will be able to find me on Spotify and some different things. So then, if, so if I put your radio station in my Spotify when I go lift tomorrow at six a.m., am I going to be pumped up? Is it? Are you going to be like screaming in my ear and get me going? Uh, well, if you look it's so it's a Pandora station, not Spotify, but okay. it, uh, it's probably going to be, it's going to be that stuff from covering the bases album, which is like, uh, you know, Pearl jam, uh, the verve pipe, it might have dirty water. So there might be a couple yeah. songs to pump you up and then there's probably going to be some ballads in there. Some rock ballads, not like, not like a, uh, you know, not like a real sweet ballad, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, most, most of the music that I like to play is, is kind of like stained Pearl jam, stone table pots. That's the stuff really man, yeah. Out the really dark kind of rock stuff from the nineties is what really turned me on about music originally. And then I started working backwards, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, you know, the Beatles. Uh, but I, I've been working kind of in reverse because uh, I just didn't, I didn't have a lot of value for the, for the early stuff when I was a kid. Wow. Well, I'm putting your music in tomorrow and that's what I'm putting 
for my workout. And again, thanks so much for coming on, Brunson. Again, absolute blast. I love talking pitching and just that that era where you were pitching in is like my favorite to kind of examine and just look at before things got like a little analytical as it is today. So um, it's awesome. And um, yeah, again, everybody listen to his music. It's awesome stuff. So Brunson, really appreciate you. Thanks again. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you.